Let's go ahead and open our Bibles to the book of Acts as we continue in our series that we've entitled Unstoppable, Seeing God's Work in the World. And today we're going to be looking at what I want to call a tale of two women. And we'll find our passage in Acts chapter 16. And just to catch up those that may not have been with us last week, we saw uh, that while we've been preaching and teaching about this unstoppable gospel and this unstoppable ministry that God is doing in the life of the early church, um, we see that there were some things that came along in their life together uh, that allowed for the gospel to be stopped maybe in some ways but God proves his faithfulness and his power to overcome them we saw the obstacle of interpersonal uh, relationships with Paul and Barnabas they get into a fight an argument about whether or not to take John Mark on the second missionary journey because John Mark had deserted them during the first missionary journey and they split ways they go each their own way and with their own team and uh, you would think that this great dynamic duo of ministry would have ended the missionary endeavors of the church, but it doesn't. God uses their conflict to allow John Mark to go with Barnabas, and they head to Cyprus to preach the good news of Jesus Christ, and Paul takes Silas, and then we learn he picks up Timothy along the way, and they go through Asia Minor, strengthening and encouraging the churches, and so what seemingly was a loss was a net gain, because now two missionary journeys are taking place instead of one. Uh, We also see that Closed doors at times can make us feel like the gospel and the ministry of Christ is stoppable. And Paul, at the end of our passage last week, comes to a place where he keeps running into closed doors, uh, opportunities that seemingly aren't availing themselves to Paul and his missionary team, and they're unsure of where to go and what to do. And it would seem as if, again, the ministry and the cause of Christ would be hindered from doing the work that God had intended for it to do. But we see at the end of the passage that through a vision, God opens a door for them to leave Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey, and head across the Aegean Sea to reach out to a new group of people in the land of Greece, uh, or Macedonia. This would be the first time the gospel would make its way into what is now Europe. And we know through the course of history that this missionary journey would ignite a fire that for 2,000 years has been lit and is still raging today in in the land of Europe through the cause of Christ and the people of God. And so we are going to see how that all unfolds through this unstoppable work that God is doing. But let's turn our attention to these two women in our text this morning. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, turn in the Pew Bible in the pew rack in front of you uh, to page 925, page 925, and we'll be in Acts chapter 11, I'm sorry, Acts chapter 16, verse 11, and we'll go through verse 18. Here's what it tells us. So setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace, and the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony, remained in this city some days. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside, where we supposed there was a group, I'm sorry, where there was a place of prayer, and we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard from us was a woman named Lydia, from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul, and after she was baptized in her household as well, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you and we thank you for your word this morning. And we ask that now you would teach us from it. Through the example of these two women, we ask that you would uh, compel upon us the, the need to understand and know that your salvation is to be received and known to all. No matter their backgrounds, no matter their status in this world, Lord, that you extend your salvation to all who will come and receive it. 
Thank you, Lord, that you have received us. Thank you, Lord, for opening our hearts and our minds to the teaching of your scripture as you did Lydia. And Lord, now move us to go and be your ambassadors, as Paul and his associates were, to share that good news to any who will listen. Lord, I'd be remiss in light of uh, yesterday's uh, news and events not to stop and pray and, and Lord, uh, to announce uh, to you and all our grieving over another uh, shooting in a house of worship. And while, Lord, we may see things differently than, than a synagogue in, in Pittsburgh, our hearts are broken that people come to worship in the freedom and the ability to do so only to be gunned down, Lord. For those young and old who were impacted by that shooting, Lord, uh, we ask you would um, be an encouragement and comfort to those who've lost their lives. Lord, I pray especially for not only this campus, but all of the campuses of Village Bible Church. I pray for uh, the churches in our local community. Lord, keep them safe. Again, Lord, while we might not agree uh, with all doctrine and all that, we do recognize in this country a great freedom to be able to worship you with freedom. The great security that we need to be able to know that this is a place of peace. Thank you for our security team. Thank you for our ushers and all those who keep watch for different things like this, Lord. Uh, Thank you for giving us a heart to uh, seek to protect those who come and worship in this place. And Lord, let us recognize that while we can do a lot, we recognize you alone are our protector. So we thank you for that, and we ask for your blessing now as we open your word. We ask for you to be high and lifted up as a result. We love you and give you praise for it. In Christ's name we pray. Amen and amen. In his historic novel of Tale of Two Cities, Charles Dickens starts this incredible novel with the following words. It was the best of times, it was the worst of times, it was the age of wisdom, it was the age of foolishness, it was the epoch of belief, it was the epoch of incredulity. It was the season of light, it was the season of darkness, it was a spring of hope, it was the winter of despair. Many of you probably never reading the book know at least the first opening lines that it was the best of times and the worst of times. And if someone was to say, what does Charles Dickens mean by that, you probably, like so many, might not be able to respond. And I want to give you a little more of the rest of the story with regards to that. The reason why Dickens starts that out in this book, A Tale of two cities. Number one, the tale of two cities is of two cities that you know of, Paris and London. And what Dickens is doing is telling a story about the time of those two cities right before the French Revolution. And what he's speaking of is a contrast. And you see that in the opening words. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. It was a time of wisdom. It was a time of foolishness. It was a spring of hope. It was a winter of despair. All of these comparisons and contrasts that speak to the place that these two major European cities found themselves at a singular place in time. London was experiencing during that time some of the greatest movement that London as a city had ever had had. Technology was growing. The Industrial Revolution was beginning to take hold and and move as a result. And, And London was experiencing a renaissance, if you will. But Paris, on the other hand, Paris was experiencing all kinds of political upheaval. There was all kinds of crime and all kinds of debauchery taking place. It was a bad time for what once was the leading city of Paris. And yet what Dickens is saying in telling his story is that when it was the best of times in London and while it was the worst of times in Paris, both cities needed a transformation. Both cities needed to be changed. Now many in London would say, we don't need it to be changed. It's great right where we're at. While many in Paris would say, absolutely, the days and winds of change are necessary. This morning, I don't want to talk about a tale of two cities. I want to talk about a tale of two ladies. What we have before us is the story of Lydia and the story of a slave girl who is demon-possessed. One has everything going for her. It's all good. It's all positive. Lydia is a wealthy woman. Lydia is a successful woman. Lydia is one who has her heart seemingly moving closer and closer to God. The slave girl, on the other hand, her life is falling apart. She's a slave. 
Her masters are telling her what she can and can't do. She's being used day in and day out. And she finds herself mocking the men of God as they come and go from the riverside. Two different women. One who's seemingly at the top of the world, the other one who's a dredge upon society. And yet both of them, just as Dickens said, need a transformation. They need to be changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And what we're going to see this morning is that the gospel of Jesus Christ goes and reaches all kinds of people everywhere, no matter their background, no matter their society status, no matter how the world views them. Not only does Jesus love them and God uh, seeks them out, but God also saves them from their sins because both of these women will be changed because of the preaching and proclamation of Jesus Christ being Savior to all. And we, as a result, need to be a people who look at the world that way, who don't look at the world as full of Lydia's and full of slave girls as if they are something different unto themselves, but as see the world filled with sinners in need of saving. And that we would go out like that missionary team did and share the good news of Jesus Christ and proclaim and compel upon people the need to bow the knee to Jesus so that they might be saved. But before we do that, before we look at these two women, let's find out kind of where we've been. Let's catch back up to where this group of men are. Notice in our text that we are told that they set sail in verse 11. They set sail from Troas. Now, why would they set sail from Troas? Now, I want you to notice on the map that Troas is there next to the the, the title of of Asia. That's Asia Minor, that's Turkey. Now the men have traveled a great distance. If you remember in in, uh, Acts chapter 15, the men, uh, Paul and Barnabas, had been in Jerusalem for the Jerusalem Council down there in Israel at the bottom of the the map. Then they made their way back up to Antioch of Syria. That's where Paul and Barnabas were leaders within the church in Acts 13. And it's in Antioch that Paul and Barnabas get into a fight. They get into an argument because they're going to go and they're going to go and strengthen the churches that they had uh, started during the first missionary journey. And so they get into a fight and what happens is Paul, I'm sorry, Barnabas takes John Mark and heads to the island of Cyprus and Paul and Silas head up and they visit the city of Tarsus, which is Paul's hometown. And as they head west, they hit the cities of Derby and Lystra. It is there that they uh, meet and add to their team young Timothy. He's from Derby, the city of Derby and the area of Lystra. They go and then they visit the city of Antioch, Pisidian Antioch, another Antioch, make their way to Troas. And the reason why they've done it while in Lystra and Derby, Paul gets a vision that someone from Macedonia, which is over on this side of the Aegean Sea, where Philippi is at, he gets a vision of a man from Macedonia who says, come over and help us. Come and minister to us. And that's exactly what they do. And so our text tells us that setting sail from Troas... They made a direct voyage to Samothrace, which is an island in the Aegean Sea. We're not sure exactly um, why they stopped there, why they don't make a direct journey all the way to Neapolis, because it's not that far of of a trek, but they stop in Samothrace, and on the following day they get back on another boat and head to Neapolis, and from Neapolis then they head inland to the city of Philippi. Now, we need to recognize, now that we know where they're going, we need to recognize who is with them. So we know right away Paul is there. We know that Silas is there because the text tells us. We are told that uh, Timothy is with them because he's picked up in Lystra and Derby. But I want you to notice the change of pronouns that takes place. Notice in chapter 16, verses 6 through 10, We see, notice in verse 6, and they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia. Uh, Verse 7, and when they had come to Mycenae, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing by Mycenae, they went down to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul. They, 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 they. Well, English tells me that when someone writes, Luke is writing this, When he says the word they, he's speaking of a group that he is not a part of. 
Okay, right? Would you agree, English majors? He's saying, this is a group that I'm not connected with. I'm a bystander. I'm a spectator to another group of people that I'm writing about. But notice in the text, it changes. And it changes when it says in verse 10, and when Paul had seen the vision, immediately, help me out, what's the pronoun? We sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called, help me out, us. So now Luke was talking about them. Now he's talking about we and us. He's including himself into this. So we know where they went. Now we know that Luke is with them and he's going to be with them throughout this journey. Now, I just want to pause for a moment because I think there's a spiritual lesson that we can learn. And the spiritual lesson is you can do one of two things as a Christian, as a follower of Christ. Both are good, but I think one is better than the other. The first thing that we can do as a follower of Jesus Christ is we can serve as a spectator of what others are doing. And what that means is, is you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you love the Lord, you, you, you long to see His work done, but you have taken a back seat as Luke had, and he's writing what others are experiencing. And I think that that's good. There is a great encouragement to no doubt go into your small group gathering this week and someone says, listen, I, I had an opportunity to share the good news of Jesus Christ and the person I shared it with, it was a person at work, and they came to know Jesus. And I'm going to imagine if that was to happen in your small group this week, all of those who are spectators to this experience would erupt in, in great joy and great uh, happiness of what has transpired in the life of one of your members. But I want you to notice that while that is good, and there are times where we will serve as spectators of what God is doing, that I believe Luke is far more impacted in his journey to Philippi than he ever was in what he had written down up to this point in the book of Acts. Because up to this point, Luke has seemingly been either a spectator or heard through eyewitnesses of what's transpired. Now he's going to experience firsthand as an active participant what God is doing. Notice, uh, I, I, I wrote down all of the we's uh, in the next couple verses. Verse 11, we made a direct voyage. Verse 12, we remained in the city. Verse 13, we went outside the gate to the riverside. Uh, 13, where we supposed there was a place of prayer, where we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who had heard us was a woman named Lydia. After she was baptized, she urged us, saying, If you've judged me faithful, then come. And she prevailed upon us. What Luke is saying is, I got to experience what it's like to be an active participant in the work of God. This last week in our small group, we had some uh, food together as a small group, as most of our groups had a social time. And, and Travis, who is one of our elders who prayed this morning, gave a report on his uh, over a week-long journey with, uh, another, with a team of others from our church to Liberia. And I, as a spectator, was deeply impacted by what he shared overjoyed by the experience he had. But I want you to know, while that was a good thing, Travis had a far greater experience. Would you agree? And while I'm changed, I'm changed for a moment, because in spectating, we're changed for a moment. But when it comes to actually being in ministry, and doing ministry, and experiencing God doing His unstoppable work through us, that's life-changing. And I don't want to take anything away from our group, but his testimony probably changes for a couple days. He, because he was active in doing the work, is changed for a lifetime. Brothers and sisters, it is okay, and at times it is good for us to be spectators to see what God is doing. But the work of the book of Acts is a calling to us to be active participants in the work that God is doing. Because when you are active in the ministry, in the unstoppable work of God, it won't change you for a moment, it will change you for a lifetime. And so be active. 
Now, how do you do that? Notice in the text. Now, I know we haven't even gotten to the text yet. We will. But I want you to notice, how did they involve themselves in the ministry of God? Well, after some closed doors in Acts chapter 16, verses 6 through 8, after some doors are closed, a door opens up. Macedonia is where God wants them to go. And they conclude that they're going to go. And Luke is a part of this, because that is the first time it says, we sought to go into Macedonia. And I want you to notice the phrase that is used. When Paul had seen the vision, verse 10, when Paul had seen the vision, when it became evident that he was going to be an active participant in the next leg of the journey, and God had declared to him, it's time to go to Macedonia, notice the word that is used. It says, and when Paul had seen the vision, help me out there, what's that next word? Immediately, without haste, he believed God and he moved. He acted. If we want to be changed and we want to see God move, we need to immediately move when God has clearly directed that it is our place and our time to go. And so that's what they do. And they conclude that God has called them to preach the gospel to the people of Macedonia. And so notice, they set sail. And we've seen where they've gone through the map up there just again so we can see that. Troas to Samothrace, they're there one day. It is told that they had favorable winds. We made a direct uh, voyage. They get to Samothrace, then they head to Neapolis, and they make their way to Philippi. Now, we are told that Philippi is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. In the original Greek, Luke is writing, there is this flare of pride when he writes this. Which concludes that Luke is a Philippian. Because he's speaking almost as if he's got hometown favorite of Philippi on his mind. It's kind of like how I talk about Hinckley, or as otherwise known, God's country. We have the best teams, we have the best schools, we have the best students, we have the nicest water, um, we have the nicest people, we have the dairy joy, okay? Tim and Amanda live there. I mean, it just, it just beckons all to come. We're the home of the first game of the Harlem Globetrotters. That puts us on Wikipedia. That's right. Okay? And that's why I've called Hinkley my home for my 42 years of living, right? I am proud of the town I live in. And it seems like Luke is excited to be there. It may be, this may be the reason why... Luke has been brought on the journey because Luke is going to be one of the guys who knows the area and is going to say, hey, let's go to Philippi. It is an awesome city. It's an awesome place to be. But I want you to know, even though I exaggerate a little bit about my little hometown of Hinkley being the best and greater than all the other cities around it, Luke has reason to rejoice about his city, to speak well of it. It was, in fact, a leading city. It was a leading city because, number one, of its location. It was a city that was just off of the Aegean Sea, which where all the goods would come to Neapolis. And from Neapolis, the hub of all transportation and commerce would have to go through Philippi, very similar to the city of Chicago. The city of Chicago is known for a commerce hub. It is, it is the hub of all the spokes of where everything flows out of as a country. Number two, it was a military city. It was a military city where many, many leaders and generals of of the Roman Empire would retire and be a part of. So it was a prestigious place. It was a place of great affluence. Finally, it was a leading city because there was no middle management leading it. And what I mean by that is that much of the area of the Roman Empire was led and overseen by intermediaries or governors. There is not an intermediary or governor over the city of Philippi. Because of its prominence, because of uh, its size, Philippi was governed by Caesar, emperor himself. 
And so when, when Philippi was talked about, it was talked about to the emperor. Think about this. It's like having the, uh, the majority leader or speaker of the house or, or uh, any known politician from your district being the big cheese, if you will, in Washington. Projects get done. Money gets diverted from other things to your local district. Philippi had it going. It was a well-known city, and it was a city that if it could be ignited by the gospel of Jesus Christ, it would change the known world. And we learn it does get ignited by the gospel of Jesus Christ, and it does change the world because we know what happens to Europe as a result. So they come into the city of Philippi, and I want you to notice they meet a wealthy woman. They meet a wealthy woman. So they go and there's no synagogue because that's what they would normally do, go into the synagogue, but there's no synagogue where Jewish worshipers would have worshipped. And they find out, they hear that a group of women on the Sabbath go down to a riverside, a riverbank, and they pray. Now this is a pretty amazing thing that amidst Roman mythology and the worship of the pantheon of gods that a group of women would go and take time on the Sabbath and worship the God of Israel. Now we don't know how deep their knowledge of the God of Israel was. We don't know uh, how long they had been worshiping. We just know that it had become a pattern in their lives that they would go on the Sabbath and pray. The men go looking for an opportunity. Supposing to find them, the opportunity doesn't land in front of them. Just a reminder to us that sometimes we've got to go looking for the people that God wants us to reach. And so they go out looking for them. And notice amongst these women is a woman named Lydia. Now we don't know a lot about Lydia. In fact, what we know about Lydia is recorded in these two verses in front of us. But what we do know of Lydia helps us to understand more about who she is and what she's doing. So let's look at what we know about her. First of all, we are told that she is Lydia, that is her name, from the city of Thyatira. Okay, well we haven't mentioned any of those cities up to this point. So where's the city of Thyatira? Let's go back to the map for a moment. And the map will tell us that we're in Philippi, which is in modern day Greece, Macedonia. And uh, Thyatira is back south of Troas. It's really the middle city between Ephesus and Troas in what is now modern-day Turkey. She is of Turkish descent, if you use the modern-day nationalities, but she finds herself living in modern-day Greece. That's where Thyatira is at. So she's traveled. We don't know how long she's been in Philippi. But we are told she's from the city of Thyatira. She's a seller of purple goods. I believe she is wealthy, and here's the reason why. When it speaks of uh, being a seller of purple goods, purple goods was the, the garments and the color that only royalty and the rich and famous wore. So I want you to get in your mind that Lydia is the Vera Wang of Philippi. Okay? She is the designer. She is the clothier of the, of the most famous and prominent and well-known people. And I'm hard-pressed to think that being a seller of such a commodity that she would be a woman who was a pauper. She was dealing with expensive goods and no doubt able to do it. Now, what we don't know about her is we don't know anything about her husband. It tells her that she is the seller, not her husband. It tells us that when she hears the good news of Jesus Christ, that she goes and, and has her entire household baptized with her, but no mention of her husband. Some believe she may have been a widow. Others believe that her husband may have been around, but had taken a second seat to the prominence that Lydia had. But we are told that this woman was a worshiper of God. She was praying. She was fellowshipping with other worshipers of God. She was obeying to some level the law of the Sabbath. And she pursued God. She longed to know God in a better way. Now, I want you to recognize this morning that when we look at Lydia, we see a woman that spiritually seems to have it all going for her. Worshipping, praying, fellowshipping, talking about spiritual things with others. It seems like she's a good Christian, right? Luke says, no, she's not a Christian. And we need to talk about that. 
Because it says, notice in the text, that as she is a worshiper of God, that the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. The phrase there, opened her heart, gives the connotation in Luke's original writing that her heart was closed to God in some ways. And the idea here is that while she was doing all the right things, she was still far from God. And that begs a reminder to us, or a warning, if you will. I wonder if Paul had in his mind, when he wrote to the church of Corinth, for the church to test themselves to see whether or not they're in the faith, if he was thinking about Lydia. Because Lydia, if she really did a full assessment of where she was at, she was doing the right things, but she was far from God. She may have longed to worship God, but she didn't have the requisite knowledge or the requisite um, compelling, if you will, to bow the knee to Jesus. We know that there's a good chance she didn't know the words or acclaims or virtues of Jesus. And she needed someone to preach her. How could she, as Paul said, how could they believe if they have not heard? So I'm not denouncing Lydia in any way. She needs to be taught the gospel. And she shared the gospel shared to her, and her heart is opened up as a result. And yet there's a warning for us that many of us go about doing Christian things, and we say, okay, I worship, I pray, I speak about spiritual things. I engage in the spiritual pattern and calendar of events. Ergo, he means I'm a Christian. But I want you to notice three truths, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time on them, but they should serve as warnings to each of us, lest we fail the test in thinking we're saved when we're not. You see, through Lydia, we see religion without Jesus leaves you unsaved. You can do all of the spiritual things that you can come up with. And you can be known by people as the most spiritual person in the world. Lydia, no doubt, by her her family and friends, was known to be a spiritual woman, but she was still far from God. Though she went about doing religious activities, even though her heart may have been in the right place, Apart from the saving work of Jesus Christ, not only Lydia, but you and I will be lost. And so stop thinking this this hour and a half you spend with us here on Sunday morning. Stop thinking the money you put into the, into the box after services are done. Stop thinking that your involvement with, with some ministry that's going on here is getting you somewhere. None of that, while it's good for the people of God to do these things, none of those things gets a salvation. Religion, apart from God or without Jesus, leaves you unsaved. I want you to know this without a shadow of a doubt. Without Paul and his team witnessing to Lydia, Lydia was lost. She was going to hell. And there are some this morning that have vaccinated, if you will, themselves into thinking that a little bit of Jesus is enough to get you to heaven. And I want you to know you're living a life of religion, not a relationship with Jesus Christ. And there's a difference. And you need to bow the knee to the gospel of Jesus Christ as Lydia did. And you need to pray and ask the Lord to open your heart so that you might hear that message and know that that message is talking about you this morning. Number two we see in Lydia, that riches without Jesus leaves you unsatisfied. Lydia seemingly had all that she needed. She had a good business, She was a seller of purple goods. That that was getting her somewhere. She had a wonderful house, a house big enough to be able to receive four men, at least four men, Paul, Silas, Timothy, and Luke, probably more that are unnamed with them. And she says, come and stay in my house and be my guest. 
To be able to do that, you would have to have a house. You'd have to have the, the staff to be able to take care of the, uh, the hygiene issues that would come, whether the cleaning of clothes, the feeding of food, the, the ability to bathe, and the ability to sleep. All of those things would need to be taken care of. And she seemingly, at a drop of a hat, says, you come. I've got no concerns that I'll be able to take care of it. She's got all the possessions she could imagine to be able to extend that kind of invitation. She's got a family that seemingly has a good relationship with her. That when she shares, I have come to know the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, that her entire household follows her in pursuing Jesus and receiving salvation. She seemingly has everything going. And all of those temporal riches are all great and wonderful. But they left Lydia unsatisfied. How do we know that? Because she was seeking after God. There was a longing. There was something missing in her life. And I want to remind you this morning that, Christian, we fall to the temptation all the time, all the time, of thinking that a possession or a thing will satisfy us And we forget that Jesus is the only one when he says, I can satisfy you is not lying. And I will tell you, this temptation is big. Let me just be really, really practical to you. I I shared a couple weeks ago, the the Badals are looking for a new uh, family vehicle. Have you, and we went and looked at a vehicle and, and we wanted it, but the price wasn't right and we got up and left. You know how hard it is to drive to your old vehicle after you've driven the new vehicle? I felt like I gained 80 pounds when I got in the old vehicle. I felt like I hadn't taken a shower in weeks. My kids didn't look as good as they did when they looked in the other vehicle. They weren't happy. They weren't, oh, we're back in the old vehicle and all of that, right? You don't get it. You're, you're Christian people. I know the Badals were sinful. This is where we live, so, Okay. Possessions have a way of telling us that they'll bring us happiness, right? Maybe it's not a car. Maybe it's a house. Maybe it's clothes. Maybe it's vacations. This will do it. But Christian, let me remind you, these things aren't bad. The Badals will at some point get a new car, all right? But I've got to be reminded, and you've got to be reminded, that what we've experienced in Jesus is enough. Fernando Ortega wrote a song that says, just give me Jesus. You can have all this world, just give me Jesus. Lydia had the world at her disposal, but she didn't have Jesus, and that left her unsatisfied. And you can live this war in this world and live in this life and have everything you could ever imagine. And I will tell you, at the very depth of who you are, you will be unsatisfied until you find satisfaction in Jesus. Number three. Riches without Jesus will leave you unsatisfied. Religion without Jesus will leave you unsaved. Relationships without Jesus will leave you unsettled. So the first thing that she does, she comes to know Jesus. She's changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And her first thought that she has is now that I know Jesus, who is she worried about? Her family. Her family, notice, it tells us in the text that her heart is opened up to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized, what does baptism mean? Baptism means that she has publicly declared in in front of others that she is a follower of Jesus Christ. So after she was baptized, not only her, but her household as well. The first thing she does after being baptized is she goes to her family and says, you need Jesus as well. Now I want you to know something that is very important. Relationships without Jesus will leave you unsettled. Lydia is unsettled. Why is she unsettled? Because she's experienced the grace and love and mercy of Jesus. And those that she says she loves the most, her family, hasn't experienced it yet. Can I just tell you, 
we are going to be entering into the next two months of what will be family time on steroids, right? Thanksgiving and Christmas. And we will sit with these people that know us better than anyone else, and we know them better than, than everybody else knows them. They're our family. And I want you to know that what Lydia teaches is that our heart should be perpetually unsettled because we know Jesus and they don't. We should not tire in praying and seeking and asking that God would bring about life change in the lives of those closest to us. And we should not tire in proclaiming that gospel even at times when it comes back with an angry rebuke. Asking the Lord, what's the next vantage point? What's the next avenue I can share? Because I will not stand idly by waiting and wondering what will happen to them in eternity. How many of us have walked past the casket of a dead loved one with grief in our heart knowing that at that point it's too late, and knowing, not beyond a shadow of a doubt, but that there's a good chance that that person is not living eternity with God, but apart from God in torment and agony. Lydia recognizes this, and it compels her to move to reaching her family with the gospel of Jesus Christ, and let that never leave our hearts and minds as well. We need to reach out because our relationships will be unsettled until they have Jesus as a part of it. Lydia, where it was the best of times, needed a transformation. Now let's move to the worst of times. Notice the text goes on, and we are introduced to a wicked woman. It tells us, as we are going to the place of prayer down by the riverside, we are met by a slave girl who had the spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us, crying, These men are the servants of the Most High God, who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Most scholars believe what she's doing is mocking them. She's mocking them, and the people of Philippi have reason to believe her because she has the gift of fortune-telling. She has the gift of divination. And so their, their reputation is being reduced as being a bunch of charlatans because she's mocking them. And she kept doing this for many days. No doubt they are, they are just um, um, moving beyond her. Um, not focusing in on what she's doing, but at some point, after those many days, Paul becomes greatly annoyed. And he turns and says to the Spirit, this is important, says to the Spirit, not the girl, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her, and it came out that very hour. Here's this woman. A young girl, uh, older translations called her, especially the old English translations, a damsel. Okay? She's a young girl. She's a slave. Notice the contrast that's going on here. Wealthy Lydia. Poor slave girl. Free Lydia. Slave girl. Of one who seeks after God. One who mocks God. One who seemingly has it all going for them. The slave girl seemingly has nothing going for her. One who's wealthy, one who's wicked. A reminder, this contrast is a reminder that all people, whether wealthy or wicked, need transformation in Jesus. Whether their lives are put together in this present world or completely falling apart, they need Jesus. And notice Paul and his team witnesses and shares the power and proclamation of God to both of them. And notice both of them are healed. Which tells us that the gospel is unstoppable against all kinds of people. Now a couple of things that I want you to see about this. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to talk about the slave girl and some principles that we can draw from it. And then I want to deal just very quickly with some concluding thoughts that deal with both women. All right? So some thoughts about uh, this wicked woman, this woman who is demon-possessed. She's a slave. She does whatever her masters say. 
She has a gift that she can tell the future. She can predict things. She's of great use to her owners, and we'll learn next week that once she loses that gift, her owners become very, very upset. And she's trying to do all that she can to destroy and mock the work of the ministry of the gospel. Three principles or truths I want you to think about. Number one, from this text, we see that the occult is no laughing matter. The occult is no laughing matter. This young lady has somehow found herself possessed by a demon. A demon that is clearly living inside of her to the point that Paul speaks to her, but isn't speaking to her, but speaking to a demon. And we are told that that demon who has taken residence up into her leaves her that very hour. We are not talking about a deranged woman. We are not talking about some crazy woman. We are not talking of simply an unstable, mentally unstable young lady. We are talking about something very, very different. And there are some who will preach this and talk about mental illness and they'll talk about um, all kinds of needs and issues and struggles that we have in the human condition. That is not what's going on here. You cannot speak to a mental disorder and speak to it as if it's a being. It's not. And so this is a demon-possessed person that Paul is speaking to to leave this girl, and it does. And that tells us that the occult and the powers of darkness under the leadership of the devil are alive and well today. They're not fairy tales. It's not hocus-pocus. It is something that is alive and well and impacts people. Notice this woman, there's nothing positive said about her. She is a sad woman. How do we know that? She has got no freedom and she is being used and abused by the people that own her. You think you're happy in that scenario and situation? Absolutely not. And this spirit is the bondage holder, if you will, the bondage keeper of this young girl's life. She can't get out of it because she's been given this gift that's being used by her masters. And we need to recognize this morning that the spirit of divination is alive and well in the 21st century amidst all of our technology and all of our things. Notice what she's able to do. She's able to tell the future. She's a fortune teller. Well, they back in the first century were primitive and they didn't have all the smarts that we do and they didn't have all that. We don't fall to that type of sin, right, Pastor? Tell the psychic hotline that. Every day. In every major newspaper in our land, you will have a whole page dedicated to the telling of horoscopes. We don't have to drive very far to see fortune telling and tarot card readings and uh, conjuring up of the dead, not only in our neighborhoods, but also on our television, where we will cross over and have conversations with the dead people on the decisions we need to make in the future. The spirit of divination is alive and well today. And what I want to tell you is, is that Christians have become casual to this thing. And we need to be careful of it. And we need to run away from it. In Hollywood, there's this resurgence of black magic and, and occult practices that have become alive and well in Hollywood again. And maybe it's because we're in the season of Halloween. I don't know. But we need to recognize that the occult is no laughing matter. And it is what the devil does. And, and, and think about it this way. Demon possession is the counterfeit of being a spirit-filled Christian. And so as the Lord, the, the Spirit of Almighty God is filling you to the place that you're able to do things you never thought possible, to speak in a way you never thought possible, to reach people like no human being would ever be able to reach people, as you're filled with the Spirit, you're able to do that. So the devil says, well, I can fill spirit people as well. And he fills that person. And in filling them, they don't receive the fruit of the... What are the fruit of the Spirit's love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, and self-control? Well, that's all good for a believer. That's all good for us to hear. What does the individual who's bound by the, the devil get? Abuse. Marginalization. Torment. 
And so it is altogether unfitting, listen to me, it is altogether unfitting for the people of God to dabble in things that is destroying others. Does that make sense? We've got to be careful with these things. Oh, it's just a horror movie. Oh, it's just a scary thing. Be careful that we don't grow casual in the spirit of divination. Because it's, cha- it's, it's, it's wreaking havoc and creating chaos in the lives of people that are affected. The occult is no laughing matter. So steer clear of it. Number two. In the story of this slave girl, we see an opportunity to look out for the marginalized. Our hearts should break that there is a damsel in distress. This girl, of which we are told, we're not told her name because it doesn't matter what her name is. We're not told of her age. It doesn't matter how old she is. It doesn't tell us who her parents are. Who cares? We don't know where she's from. We don't know what she looks like. It doesn't matter. The only thing that matters is that we can get something from her. And so notice what it tells us. She brought her owners, verse 16, much gain by fortune telling. Notice verse 19. It's outside of our text, but verse 19. But when her owners saw their hope of gain was gone... They have no regard for this young girl. What does she bring me? Number one, it should be a reminder. This should be a reminder that we should never marginalize another person to be something that is a means to an end. So we should never use people for what they get us in spite of what it does to them, Christian. Never. I don't care if it makes you a good business person. I don't care if it makes you the most popular kid in school. I don't care what it does. We never use people to get to an end that takes care of ourselves. That's slavery. Number two, we need to recognize that this marginalization wasn't just happening in the first century. It's happening today. And it's how ironic that it's a young girl. And while young boys may be impacted by this, our young ladies are marginalized by men who seek to use them for their enjoyment, for their well-being, with no regard for them. Thousands of young ladies are told every year that they are embarking on a road of modeling, And it leads to pornography. And they are used for a period of time. Because after they get a little older, they're not as as desirable. So for a period of time, they are lied to and promised things. So that they can be marginalized. And when they are done being used, they are thrown aside. No thought of them ever again. You've accomplished what we want from them. Now we have no need for them. Now let me bring it closer to home. You say, well listen, I'm not a, I'm not a pornographer. As we engage in that, in viewing that as men and women, what we do is we high-five the pornographer and we say, yep, I'll take what I want from her or him. I'll use it for my enjoyment and my good. And I have no regard for my brother or sister in Christ, my fellow human being that God created in the image and likeness of himself. I use them as a means to my end. Listen, when we engage in the marginalization for our enjoyment, the marginalization of others, we are no different than their slaveholders. And Christians, we've got to recognize that. And we've got to confess that. My sin in the sin of pornography is not just a sin of lust. It is a sin of outright brutality to a fellow human being for my good. And by clicking on that site, going to that place, I render them a slave 
to do as I want. And when I'm done, then I move on. And the sad thing is, they don't. That's their life. Oh, Christian, be very, very careful to not marginalize. And, and, and God speaks of this over and over again because marginalized people are not just in the pornographic world. They're all over the place. The alien and strangers of our world. <clears throat> and we are called to go and be their spokespeople. We are told to be their savior when they are in need of rescue. And so let us be so very careful to not allow marginalization to go on before us. Paul got rid of that marginalization once and for all. Finally, we see God's opponents don't stand a chance and yet they mock. We see two battles going on. We see Paul and his team versus the slave master, or the slave girls masters on the physical realm. But we also see in the spiritual realm the forces of good under God versus the forces of evil under the devil. And the fight goes on. Paul on the side of God, the demon who's filled and inhibited, and inhabited the uh, slave girl fighting. And it seems as if the devil has the upper hand. The woman calls them out as they enter into Philippi. These men are servants of the Most High God. They've come to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. I'm going to mock what they're doing. No doubt causing concern or fear in the, in the minds of these men that they've lost the upper hand to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so they mock. But I want you to know that God, amidst their mocking, holds the upper hand. At the very word of Jesus, I command you in the name of Jesus to come out of her. Notice what happens. Notice how long the fight went on. Went for a long time, didn't it, right? No. It came out that very hour. The devil and his demon didn't stand a chance. Now, what's the truth that I want you to draw from this? Listen, the world mocks us for our ministry, right? How many of us have been called all kinds of names for being followers of Jesus Christ? And yet I want you to recognize and, and know today that it is Jesus who wins the day. He always does. And the devil knows it. And the demons know it. That in the name of Jesus, they shudder. They know they've lost. And so the mocking will come, but never forget the opponents of God will one day stand before God, and at the name of Jesus, not only will they leave every body that they possess, but they will bow the knee and worship Jesus as Lord. Two women, totally different. Different backgrounds, different lifestyles, different engagement with God. And yet both are saved. Some concluding thoughts and I'll close. And we'll go really quick with this. We see that God's work is unstoppable once again. But how do we see that? I want you to notice the first thing that we see is that to see God on the move and His unstoppable work, we have to step out in faith and we'll see God move. Only then will we see God move. How do we get to the city of Philippi? We get to the city of Philippi. Nothing in verses 11 through 18 can happen Unless verse 9 and 10 take place. God says, I want you to go do this, Paul. I want you to take your team. I want you to go to Macedonia. And as soon as they see the vision, immediately they sought to go to Macedonia. Listen, had they not obeyed God, they would have never seen God move in such a dramatic way. And listen, we're only in part one of the trip to Philippi. There's a whole lot more coming. And some of you are sitting in Troas right now spiritually. And you're begging God, show me you're on the move. God, save my family. God, do this amazing work. And you're sitting in Troas and God has been screaming to you, get over to Macedonia. Well, I will when I see something happen in Troas. No, nothing was happening in Troas. They set sail to go to Macedonia and they saw the world change. And some of us need to take a step of faith before we'll see God move. Some of us have to leave Troas to see God on the move in our Macedonia. Number two, we need to recognize that salvation spans the spectrum. 
Let us never forget this passage of Scripture, that it reminds us no matter you're rich or poor, old or young, slave or free, close to God and seeking after Him, or far from God and mocking Him, that no one is outside the spectrum of God's salvation. And that means, therefore, that we seek to reach out to all people. Not our kind of people, not the people of our same color, not the people of our same economic status, but all people everywhere because all are lost and in need of the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And because God, the final thing, is seeks to save sinners. The heart of God is to be a savior. The heart of God is to extend salvation. And I want you to know that that heart of God and that plan of God started way before these guys got to Philippi. God was at work in the life of these men, in the life of these women, way before their moment of salvation happened. And I want you to know this morning, listen very carefully and I'll close. And don't forget this as you woe into a new work week and school week. Never forget that God is on the move. And quite honestly, could God be preparing hearts right now of people you are going to be encountering tomorrow? Who is that person that God is at work in? You don't maybe even, maybe even don't even know their name yet. That God is preparing. And recognize that he who begins a good work in people is faithful to see it to completion. And so God is moving you and calling you and compelling you to be his ambassador that goes out into the world and shares the good news of Jesus Christ to all who will listen. And let's pray that we won't be distracted in that calling, but we will be filled with the Holy Spirit so that when the opportunity arises, we will be ready, we will be willing, and we will be able to preach that good news and watch God change lives. He did it in the lives of two women. He's done it in our lives. And we know this week He will do it in lives of those around us.